Hello and welcome to Natasha Explains It All. Today is a very special episode because this is going to be my first guest interview. I received feedback that doing guest interviews is something that listeners would like um, to hear. And so um, today is the first of hopefully many guest interviews. With me today is Kevin Mulshine, and we are going to be talking about unionizing efforts of staffers on Capitol Hill. So something I don't know a lot about, but I think is super interesting and hopefully listeners will also find interesting and very timely given how much discussion there is across the country around labor rights and unionizing. And uh, Kevin is an expert on, on this topic and what's happening at the very heart of the federal government that is responsible for you know, setting the tone and the regulations and laws about the right to organize and the right to form a union. So we're gonna be talking about that today. Uh, and before we get into that, I'm gonna introduce Kevin um, briefly and then talk about how uh, he and I met um, and then get into uh, the topic for today. So Kevin Mulshine, served as Deputy General Counsel for the Architect of the Capitol, which he will explain later what the Architect of the Capitol does. And he previously served as Senior Advisor and Counsel on the first staff of the Office of Compliance slash the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights, which is uh, very central to congressional staffing unionizing efforts, which we'll get into uh, later in this episode. Um, uh, Mr. Molshine was also a staff assistant for a House member from New Jersey. He also was a senior attorney uh, to the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, where he was a union steward. Um, and so <laughs> we have an expert in the House today around unionizing efforts and congressional business. Um, and again, before we get into all of that, um, another area of expertise um, and how we met is through a volunteer uh, effort that we were both volunteers um, on called Herd on the Hill. So welcome, Kevin, and uh, would you mind telling listeners about what Herd on the Hill is? Great, Natasha. Thanks so much for inviting me to, uh, to this talk because I think it's very important uh, to have this picture inside Congress and how local citizens in the Washington area have in the past had input. Um, Heard on the Hill is a um, very low-tech, although it, it was uh, derived a lot of its input from Facebook and other kinds of social media. It was really a low-tech approach to um, getting citizens messages into members of Congress. And what we would do would be to have uh, citizens in the districts all around the country and the states all around the country who wanted to contact uh, their representatives and senators, um, have them develop letters um, on uh, a Facebook site or on the Herd on the Hill site um, transmit them electronically to a printer on Capitol Hill at a, a, the office of a volunteer friend. And um, we'd print them out in hard copy, and then uh, volunteers for Heard on the Hill would meet in one of the office buildings on Capitol Hill. And again, this is before pandemic hit. And we would simply deliver the letters with names and addresses of constituents to the senators or Congress people that uh, constituents, who constituents wanted to reach. And we often could have uh, a very timely impact because um, we would be walking into the buildings with these sheets of letters and um, simply delivering them without an envelope, without postage, um, to the front office of uh, members of Congress and senators. And um, it really enabled uh, constituents to have a very timely input 
into um, the issues of the day. Unfortunately, with, with the pandemic and with the security issues on Capitol Hill, the buildings for quite a long time were not accessible. They're now opening uh, in a very slow manner, but during the pandemic, uh, they were um, essentially closed off. The houses of the people were uh, not available to the people themselves. So yeah. Heard on the Hill uh, really uh, had to shut its operation down. Yeah. What were, you, what were your experiences, Natasha? I'd be interested how you heard about Heard on the Hill. Yeah, I'm trying to remember now how I originally got connected to Heard on the Hill. That's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that because <laughs> um, I don't remember the initial contact, but... Um, but I, you know, remember really enjoying, as Kevin was just describing, that we as volunteers would sort and gather the letters and then go to Capitol Hill and deliver the letters in person to the relevant congressional offices. And I think uh, people who are listening to this may not know, because I think a lot of people don't know that um, every single member of Congress on both the House side as well as the Senate side has an office. Well, I think people understand that they have an office on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., but those offices are open to the public, um, with the exception of the pandemic. Um, they're generally open to the public, and so you as a member of the public can go in there and say you know, that you'd like to speak to a staffer about an issue that concerns you as a constituent. Um, but in practical terms, right, because those offices, I mean, they have field offices in their states, but in DC, that's far for a lot of people to get to. So it was cool to act as that intermediary and collect people's concerns. And oftentimes, you know, there's concerns that are overlapping and we could bring them to the offices. And I feel like the staffers started to recognize us, you know, of like the herd on the hill team would be showing up and being like, hey, you know, make sure that these letters, um, you know, uh, are considered and, and, and read by the appropriate staff person. Um, and because, yeah, the like the height of herd on the hill was during the Trump administration. And there were so many issues that were coming up and we would like try to categorize letters by topic area. And um, yeah, you know, because I think perhaps if you're listening to this, you know, you may have filled out like a form letter on or some type of petition online and wondered, you know, like where that went. Well, <clears throat> we tried to make that more impactful by actually hand delivering each of those letters. Um, you know, and the, and the genius of the uh, concept, and I can't claim credit for it. It was really uh, former colleagues of ours who live on Capitol Hill um, was that in reducing it to low tech hard copy letter, uh, the member of Congress would have to develop a hard copy letter in return instead of just simply replying to an email. And that, mm -hmm. uh, having worked in a congressional office before the advent of the internet, I can just tell you that uh, it it really requires some concentration and some spending of time for a staff assistant uh, to uh, to develop that kind of letter and then get a signature from from the member or the senator. And uh, as a result, there would be more of an opportunity to bring these uh, citizen concerns to the uh, to the desk of the senator or member of Congress. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I I remember um, I remember that one like really really intense time as part of our volunteer efforts was around the confirmation of Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And DC was just a mess at that time. And there were protests all the time. And we got floods of letters, uh, you know, opposing his nomination. And um, it, 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 it felt, 
you know, like we could do something to amplify the voices of people from across the country who were, you know, trying to get their members of Congress um, to pay attention. And we were, you know, just contributing to the many efforts um, to help the administration understand that people, you know, were paying attention. And um, so, yeah, that's that's how we met. And um, and it, c- it continues with the theme of um, today's episode about talking about Congress and what's happening there. And um, so, yeah, is there anything else on Heard on the Hill that you'd like to mention, Kevin, before we turn well, to I think, uh, other stuff? You mentioned, you mentioned Justice Kavanaugh, uh, now Justice Kavanaugh, the, uh, the wonderful thing about the turnaround uh, time that uh, we... Um, we took advantage of. Senator Collins from Maine, for example, was quoted as saying, she's just hearing from interest groups. She's not hearing from real Mainers on the issue. And we uh, uh, contacted um, the indivisible groups that and, and other groups that we had contacts with in, uh, in Maine and said, we need letters. And sure enough, within a day, we had like 1,200 letters that we then hard, you know, in hard copy, that we then uh, delivered into the senator's office to say these are citizen letters. Of course, unfortunately, it didn't have the desired impact, but it it really did show how the strength of the response from the indivisible groups and others in the states could really. Uh, work together with our efforts to to immediately um, reach the senator and say, no, this is not just interest groups. This is not just lobbyists. These people are real citizens. So that's an example of how uh, strong and, and potentially powerful the, the voices through Heard on the Hill were felt by uh, legislators. Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for bringing up that example because I remember that and just, yeah, just having this enormous uh, outpouring, right, of objections um, to his nomination from Senator Collins' constituents and delivering those. And I, uh, that reminds me of going, yeah, through the halls of one of the buildings to deliver them and, and seeing. I think I, I don't want to call them volunteers because I don't know if they were volunteers or paid staff, but a group of people from the Women for Kavanaugh movement um, who are also there delivering um, letters. And um, but we were there in a grassroots effort to say, hey, we are here on behalf of your constituents and this is what your constituents care about. So. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for the reminder of that. And one other powerful quick note, thing: uh, mm-hmm. the the real uh, power too for us in living in the District of Columbia was that when we delivered these letters, we would also, uh, after voicing the concerns of citizens, we would also ask what the member or the senator's position was on democracy, on full rep- democratic represent representation for uh, the citizens in the District of Columbia, where we do not have any legislators who can vote to represent us. Yes, that's a very good point. And that's like a whole other episode in itself that, yes, just briefly for those who, uh, for our listeners, um, yes, so all of the volunteers for Heard on the Hill were, you know, uh, D.C. residents taking advantage of their uh, physical presence in DC to facilitate this amplification of constituent voices from across the country. Uh, and, but the irony being that those very constituents as D- excuse me, as those volunteers as DC residents don't have a voting member of Congress. Uh, so that's like a yeah, whole other <laughs> issue about how DC is not a state even though DC residents have to pay federal taxes. Um, and um, anyway, so uh, yeah, that is, a, that was, uh, it, it was, Heard on the Hill was also an effort to uh, keep the campaign for DC statehood alive and a, a, a front and center issue. And it remains that case. So, you know, we're not at statehood yet, but 
The issue is not dead. Right. Um, okay. Well, let's uh, let's pivot now to the core topic um, of today's interview, which is related to unionizing efforts on Capitol Hill. I'll plug for listeners that in the show notes, I'll include some links to articles um, with more details about what we're going to talk about today. But um, just briefly before I turn it over to our guest, um, members, when we think about Congress, uh, the public generally knows about the members of Congress, like the actual representatives and senators. But there are so many people who uh, work for them and work for Congress as itself to make the whole thing operate well. And so these congressional staffers, there have been some really interesting efforts recently to allow those staffers to unionize and to fight for, you know, the things that unions tend to fight for, better pay, better working conditions, etc. And so um, as you know, there has been a recent change in who is in charge of the House, and this has impacted those efforts. So, um, Kevin, would you mind giving just a little bit of overview of you know the last few years um, um, about what's been happening regarding efforts to unionize staff on Capitol Hill? Great. Yeah, and I, uh, uh, this is um, a. Um... 26-year, 27-year effort that started with the Republican majority in 1995 uh, that uh, campaigned on the issue of Congress being immune from the, the laws that it passes for the private sector. So in 1995, the Congressional Accountability Act was passed unanimously by the um, Congress by the House, and there was only one voting member in the Senate who voted against it. And um, President uh, Clinton uh, signed off on it. So 1995, it was passed. 1996 was the, the implementation of the law, the opening of uh, the office that I initially worked for, the Office of Compliance, which is now known as the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. And um, it applied 11 statutes, and, and there have been several other statutes that are, have been added to that, but 11 workplace safety, uh, equal employment rights statutes to the Congress, which uh, before that time was essentially a legal wilderness. The employees on Capitol Hill had no protections when it came to discrimination, to sexual harassment, to uh, discrimination based on disability um, and, and other things. And also it, uh, the workplace was not covered by the Occupational Safety and Health Act. So uh, in, very, in, in reality, the uh, congressional work environment was essentially what had been called the last plantation. Wow. Um, and, um, and so in 1995, and then with implementation in 1996, that was changed. And at least it was changed in law. The, the real challenge was uh, Congress at that time, uh, and in fact, I can give you a quote from a member of Congress who was leading the uh, House uh, Education Labor Committee, which I think at that point was called the Educational Workforce. Um, but uh, this was Congressman Goodling from Pennsylvania. He said that the Congress should not be allowed to escape the problems created by its own failure to draft laws properly. And perhaps mm. through this approach, um, and because of a lack of clarity, our creating confusion and litigation in the private sector. And he, his approach was that if Congress had to live by the same laws that they applied to the private sector, they'd learn how defective those laws are or how inefficient, uh, insufficient those laws are. Mm. From the Democratic side, uh, the Democrats, at least on paper, were 
in, uh, interested in uh, granting uh, full rights to their employees. But as we learned over the 25, 26 years since then, um, both parties have been deficient in terms of making that law really come into reality. And with regard to unionization, it had been uh, in 1996, there were, uh, was an action by the Office of Compliance that would have made the labor uh, section of this uh, law applicable to congressional staffers. Well, Congress, um, and in fact, in one of the um, in one of the headlines, they said uh, Congress came up with a uh, strategy for uh, for avoiding liability under the labor law, and that was simply not voting. They had created a provision in the law that said that before this is applied to congressional staff. Uh, to the Office of Compliance, you have to send us regulations that you adopt that show how it's going to be applied to the congressional staffers, because we feel congressional staffers are have a unique role and cannot, in some cases, be represented by a union. Mm. And the Office of Compliance turned around and said, well, we'll decide on a case-by-case -case basis and they did it through regulations as to whether a specific provision in a congressional office should be exempt from the law. Mm. Can I pause you? Can I pause you on that, yeah, Kevin? Um, so, couple of things there. So, basically, before 1995, people working for Congress basically had no had no protections, no workplace protections. And then with this um, Congressional Accountability Act in 1995 going into effect in 1996, we start to have some protections, but then there's all this dispute about, you know, who exactly it covers. Can you um, share for listeners, like, who are we talking about here? Because people might imagine we're talking about, like, the, the people who work directly for each member of Congress, right? Like, the chief of staff and, like, you know, if you call a congressional office, like the person who answers the phones, but it's much broader than that, right? Like it includes, you know, people who clean the congressional offices. C can you give examples of the categories of employees we're talking about here? Yeah, so the uh, it's important to understand that Capitol Hill is really a city unto itself. It requires people to keep the buildings running it requires tech people to keep the social media and other internet-related um, uh, activities going. It um, it requires, for example, when you go to the Congression, uh, the Capitol Visitor Center, and you want a tour of the Capitol, it requires a visitor assistance to uh, to be employed who spread the information about how the Congress works and how the Capitol came into existence. Um, so, so there's a lot of different categories. The support offices in 1996 were pretty much, uh, you know, and these are support offices in terms of the architect of the Capitol, the Capitol Police, uh, the House Recording Studio, the Senate Recording Studio. Um, there's a number of other um, uh, workforces that were covered by all the provisions of the Congressional Accountability Act uh, starting in 1996. In 96 um, in was the first time that staffers could have been, uh, and again, support staff within the members' offices, within the senators' offices, and, and also working for a whole separate set of support offices that, but were those support offices uh, supported just the House or just the Senate, or like the Congressional uh, Budget Office was an independent office within the Congress. So mm. those workforces uh, did not gain 
the right to uh, organize or to be represented or to, to act in a concerted way to affect their terms and conditions of employment. Mm. So just on that, so what I was also capturing is this a, a huge purpose behind the Congressional Accountability Act to at least start the process of allowing some categories of employees on Capitol Hill to uh, organize for better working conditions was trying to eliminate this double standard of right that the pri that Congress is passing laws that bind private employers, but yet those laws aren't binding the public employers on Capitol Hill. And it's funny because I feel like this is a very common thread in many areas. It's not the focus of our episode today, but this reminds me of healthcare, for example. And I've had many conversations with people that are like, you know, it's very funny and ironic that we as taxpayers pay for the public health care, health insurance of members of Congress. And yet there's many members of Congress who refuse to support Medicare for all or any type of like universal public health care, even though they get that. Um, so it's very much a double standard when it comes to health care. And it seems yep. like this is another example of at least an effort, right, to eliminate this double standard between how public employees on Capitol Hill um, are being treated versus private sector, particularly when the people who are creating this double standard are the people in charge of writing the laws and regulations that control the private sector. Exactly, and that's what uh, Speaker Gingrich and the and the Republican majority, the new Republican majority in 1995, said that uh, Congress will write better laws and amend and correct problems with existing laws if they had the experience of having to abide by those laws, which they hadn't had to do uh, up till that point. Well, do you think that that prediction actually panned out? Did that end up <laughs> affecting how how laws were written uh, now that they were applied to themselves? Because it also sounds like what you're saying is like, okay, this law was passed, but then it still took, and we're still to this day fighting about who these protections apply to and who can even organize to ask for protections. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think that's uh, the problem, is that Congress, it, even in writing this law, um, uh, you know, when you get down in deep into the weeds in the provisions of the law, really wrote it in such a way that they are still dodging the obligation to abide by the same laws that they applied to the private sector and to the rest of the federal government. I mean, the rest of the federal employees have to, uh, and, and agencies have to abide by these laws. Um, but Congress has, uh, through very um, you know, detailed mechanisms, has succeeded in dodging them. Huh, okay, so if we fast forward to uh, the present time, uh, my understanding is, and if you could develop uh, or elaborate on this, is that, so this law was passed in the mid-90s, but it wasn't until last year, essentially, right, that you had the first congressional uh, offices actually unionizing under this law. And then with the change in leadership in the House this year, there's talk that even those efforts, you know, what is that, like almost 30 years after the law was originally passed, might stall in terms of having additional unionizing efforts moving forward. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and so you're, uh, this is a subset of the 11 different statutes, and I think it may be 12 or 13 by this time, that Congress applied to its own operations. So that subset of the Labor Management Relations Act um, 
had not come into uh, full implementation until um, May, well, July of last year for the House and, and uh, for the House offices, and it still hasn't gone into effect for the Senate offices. So the, uh, and I usually refer to them as young people who are coming to Washington with a mission to serve their member, um, don't have any advocates for them themselves when it comes to working conditions on Capitol Hill. So, uh, and, and this is important specifically with regard to Fair Labor Standards Act, the wage and hour law that everybody has to abide by. Um, there's no one there to advocate to say that when somebody has worked 40 hours in a work week, they then cross over and have to be paid overtime in order to uh, work anything above that 40-hour limit. And um, members, both Democrats and Republicans, often just sidestep that and say either the employee is exempt from the law or, well, you're just doing this as a, uh, you know, a volunteer. You're, you're a dedicated professional mm. and you're, um, uh, the additional hours that you work, uh, they might be recognized through some sort of bonus or something, but not through time and a half for overtime pay. So that kind of provision that's already into in effect, um, which could be enforced through a union representative, um, is just goes by the boards because uh, there there isn't anybody there to shield the employee from uh, the um, spotlight if an employee steps up and say, "Hey, I'm entitled to overtime pay for this additional work." And uh, the member says, who are you to raise um, legal rights? Uh, right. There isn't that collective protection that, that an employee who's represented by a union has. And so, uh, so that, that's really an essential part of the law that just does not pinch on the members of Congress, both Democrats and Republicans. So what is the role then of the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights? Because I know you mentioned that with the passage of the Congressional Accountability Act in the mid-90s, this Office of Congressional Workplace Rights, originally called the Office of Compliance, was created uh, to facilitate the implementation of this law. And you were part of that, you know, the first staff of that office. What role what role does that office play in all of this? Well, it's it's really the reactive role, um, and and I, I've advocated for them to be more proactive. But they really react when an employee or an employee group uh, walks through their doors and wants to file either a charge or a petition for an election, or um, in the other sections of law, a, a, a complaint of employment discrimination or sexual harassment, um, they, they react to that and they have to process those complaints. And they're the ones who appoint hearing officers uh, who would hear those complaints. Um, there's also, um, uh, you can file a, a charge or a complaint with the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. And once you file that complaint, you can then go into federal district court in certain areas of the law. And, um, and so they're really the, the doorway through which employees who want to assert their rights can, uh, can begin the process of vindicating those rights. And is it, is it effective? Um, are there any examples that you could perhaps share of, uh, of that vindication? Each time that I look at the numbers, it's, 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 uh, there are very few cases that are filed. 
Um, but the cases that are filed are largely from the Capitol Police, from the architect of the Capitol. Um, those employees are uh, represented by unions. And certainly in the labor category, most of the labor cases are from the Capitol Police. Um, but the architect of the Capitol staff, and, and uh, maybe I can quickly talk about the architect. Sure. The architect is a person as well as the agency that keeps up the buildings and runs the Capitol Visitor Center and uh, employs all the painters, the custodial workers, the laborers, everybody who makes sure that Capitol Hill is a comfortable environment for members of Congress and senators. And um, those employees for the architect, for example, I think it's up to about 2,400 employees and probably more if you count uh, contractors. And then Capitol Police have 2,800 or maybe 3,000 uh, employees, not only officers who are sworn to uh, protect uh, the members and, and to protect the buildings, but also uh, support human uh, human resources people, uh, the other sort of personnel um, uh, individuals that are necessary in order to keep the Capitol Police um, running as a as a vital agency. Um, so those those employees really are the ones who take most advantage of the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. Um, but but essentially the OCWR, as it's known, um, just reacts when cases are filed. Got it. So it sounds like the 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 employees that are able to uh, you you know that are able to best use the uh, OCWR, the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights are those groups of employees who are already unionized, right? Right, yeah. Okay. And so, um, and I want to talk, we're going to talk more about the architect of the Capitol and because there's some turmoil there related to the January 6th insurrection. Before turning to that, are there any congressional offices that have unionized based on this change? Uh in implementation of the law last year? Yeah, now there, uh, there's a group called the Congressional Workers Union, um, and you can find them on uh, social media. Uh, they are um, organizing offices and so far uh, have succeeded in, uh, in getting uh, uh, collective bargaining representation status at, I think, maybe 10, maybe uh, more offices. They are all um, led by uh, members of Congress on the House side who are um, Democrats. Um, but there's uh, just a vast number of not only other offices, uh, Democrats and Republicans, but also there's those House-specific um, support offices. There, there's something called the chief administrative officer who uh, employs uh, just a whole raft of skilled employees for carpeting and for drapes. And I could get into uh, <laughs> the weeds about mm -hmm. uh, how these offices are set up. Um, a lot of them sound like they're duplicative with offices of the architect of the Capitol. And, and in fact, some of them are. Um, but uh, the, the uh, way that the House and the Senate support staff has grown has really been a sort of an organic historical um, vestige of, of what used to exist um, before all these laws became effective and also before Congress became a much larger operation. So can you talk about my understanding is, is that, so for listeners, in November of last year, November 2022, there were midterm elections. And as a result of that, the majority of the House <clears throat> flipped from Democratic control to Republican control. 
And so now the Speaker of the House is a Republican member of Congress from California called Kevin McCarthy. And my understanding is, is that he's proposed something that would potentially undermine these recent efforts to uh, unionize um, congressional offices. Can you speak to that? Well, in fact, it's not only proposed, but it's it's also uh, this very vague uh, provision has become part of House rules. And uh, just to inform the listeners, um, the House and the Senate have um, constitutional rights to create their own rules. And uh, usually that is a perfunctory kind of exercise and the rules roll over from one Congress to another. Each Congress is two years in length. And, um, but in this case, there was a new provision that, that uh, was headlined as restoring uh, accountability. And that provision simply said that the regulations that are adopted, that were adopted by the House in the 117th Congress, which was uh, the Congress that existed before January of 2023, uh, would be uh, would not be effective in the 118th Congress. And uh, I've been writing on this and should have uh, something published pretty soon that talks about how ineffective this attempted withdrawal of the labor rights that were granted back in July of 2022. Um, uh, that that the, uh, the wording really is not as explicit enough to really uh, achieve a withdrawal of those rights. Mm. Um. So, well, it sounds like it's going to be a continuing issue um, of what, to what extent, right, uh, employees on Capitol Hill, what, what is the, going to be the extent of their rights, including their right to organize? Can you, can you speak to, you know, what connections, if any, this has to the greater labor and organizing movement across the country? Because as listener, listeners may be aware, the last, you know, several years have really shown an uptick in unionizing efforts and equally union busting efforts. You know, listeners may be familiar with some of the larger employers like Starbucks and Amazon, where there have been really concerted efforts by employees to unionize and then the corporations coming in and firing people who've tried to unionize or doing other types of things to undermine those efforts. And to me, it doesn't seem like a coincidence that the, that, you know, 2022 and 2023 have been huge years in terms of uh, union organizing on Capitol Hill as well. Uh, But do you think that there's a connection? Can you speak to you know, uh, this this general environment in the U.S. and a lot of movement to uh, re, re-strengthen uh, unions and labor rights? Well, and I think that the move last year to finally push uh, this labor law section of the Congressional Accountability Act over the finish line Um, was really a a, a sign that uh, congressional staffers, first of all, they were feeling totally overworked and and totally ignored when it came to their own um, benefits and wages. Um, But also they recognized that without gaining this kind of um, agency to, to be represented by a bargaining agent, they were just going to continue to be ignored. And, um, and I think they were watching the activities of Starbucks workers and Amazon workers and workers in other environments, particularly in the tech area, to, uh, to select a bargaining agent and to benefit from the, the, um, uh, the, the kinds of functions that the bargaining agent can perform. Um, 
they they pushed um, a congressman from Michigan who is from a labor state to introduce a resolution to finally push over the finish line this uh, labor law section of the Congressional Accountability Act. And um, I think uh, employees are realizing that the benefits of having a collective bargaining agreement as, as well as having an ongoing bargaining agent who has some sort of status and protection in law is really something that, uh, that employees can, can benefit from. Um, so, uh, so I think it's the, the efforts in the private sector and the efforts on Capitol Hill really go hand in hand. Yeah, that's so interesting. And for additional context for the public, I think that I wonder if you can share a little bit more about, and there's many, there's many things that people are fighting for, but one of them is you were talking about is like wage and hour and, 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 and salary. I think perhaps members of the public may, again, the most visible people to them are the members of Congress themselves. And, you know, they have high salaries and people may think that, well, everybody else who works on Capitol Hill also is making a lot of money. Uh, but that's actually not, that's not the reality, right? In terms of like the salaries that, you know, the, the average congressional uh, staffer is getting. I think I remember reading something, and correct me if I'm wrong. Like part of part of these most recent efforts was trying to create some kind of floor so that you know the the minimum salary would be something like fifty thousand dollars or something. Well, it's um, interesting. Last year, as this resolution was being pressed forward by uh, Representative Levin from Michigan. Speaker Pelosi uh, issued an order from the Speaker's office and said that the minimum salary for a congressional staffer on the House side um, should be $45,000 a year. And um, that was the first time that uh, there was a pronouncement from the Leader of the House and, and the Speaker in, a, uh, in reality is supposed to be representing both the majority party and the minority party, um, but recognized that um, there should be a floor in terms of a salary. Wow. And um, employees until uh, then, and, and really the question is what kind of impact, it's not like it passes a law. Mm -hmm. uh, the members who employ uh, employees on their staffs um, can abide by this or not and there's really no enforcement mechanism for it and that's because this is not part of the law this is uh, something that the speaker has issued and of course the current speaker i i haven't seen whether or not he's uh, revoked that order um, but it, it, the new majority, I'm sure, ignores it. And, um, you know, these dedicated employees who come to Washington to work for their uh, member uh, and where they have to move residences and live in Washington or live in the Washington area come to realize that $45,000 is, you know, they really need to get a second job if mm -hmm. they can in order to pay the rent or in order to pay for housing and, and meals and everything that's necessary to support oneself in the Washington area. And many of them come from uh, districts where the cost of living is much lower and they're really uh, shocked by how much it costs to maintain uh, a life in the Washington area. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it's, it's not a partisan thing. Unfortunately, um, the, the progress in terms of achieving a bargaining agent uh, so far has been a partisan thing. The only offices organized have been Democrats, but um, everybody needs a bargaining agent. Um, and um, unfortunately, uh, the majority of employees on Capitol Hill will not have it.
as long as the the uh, law is not being applied equally. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely something that is going to, I think, continue to be something for, for everyone to watch. And particularly as you were talking about this intersection, what's happening in the private sector across the country and fascinating that yeah, public sector employees on Capitol Hill are watching what's happening in the private sector across the country and using that to fight for change within the halls of Congress, within the halls where all the laws are made in the first place. Um, in, our, in our remaining minutes, I want to loop back to um, what you mentioned earlier um, <clears throat> about the architect of the Capitol and the Capitol Police um, because my understanding is is that there's been some shakeup at the um, office of the um, architect of the Capitol, and that it relates um, at least in part to the January sixth insurrection. And for listeners, what I when I'm saying the January sixth insurrection, I'm talking about uh, January sixth of of 2021. Uh, when supporters of former President Donald Trump invaded Capitol Hill, um, causing massive destruction in an attempt to overturn the election results. And my understanding, and Kevin, please get into this uh, in your response, is that the not, it's not just the Capitol Police, but it's also the architect of the Capitol that is responsible for the like actual physical security of Capitol Hill and that this is feeding into the current um, issues. Yeah, and I th the architect of the Capitol not only uh, is responsible for the buildings and, and a lot of that with the buildings is, um, is uh, making sure that the, the doors are secure, the garages are secure, that um, um, uh, the architect makes, uh, in partnership with the Capitol Police, uh, makes sure that uh, the buildings can be protected. Um, the architect is also a member of a three-member panel, the Capitol Police Board. And in, in the case of the architect who was in position on January the 6th, he was, uh, first of all, appointed by President Trump uh, the year before, and um, and he um, was the only member of the Capitol Police Board to continue in office after January the 6th. The other two members were uh, felt it necessary to resign or were forced to resign. And so it's ironic that a Trump appointee was in charge of the Capitol Police Board. Mm, mm. Um, and, um, and the current uh, the architect of the Capitol was, in fact, removed by President Biden um, about two weeks ago, I think it is now, because of uh, personal um, ethical issues that were found out by my successor, who's the inspector general of the architect of the Capitol. And uh, long and short of it is that he was abusing his privileges uh, with regard to a government car. He was found to have imper impersonated a law enforcement officer. And he, um, he gave uh, the privilege to his wife to uh, give tours of the Capitol um, in advance of January 6th when the buildings were all closed to the public. Wow. And she posted uh, very prominently on Facebook that she invited all patriots to come and, and see the Capitol. Now, it was never fleshed out exactly what that meant. And uh, in fact, the January 6th committee, as far as I know, did not look into her activities. Hmm. Um, but that was all part and parcel of the reason why uh, the president and, and actually the bipartisan leadership of the of the Congress pressed President Biden to remove the architect. And, and the, the president is the only one in uh, according to existing law who has that power. So let me just make sure I capture that. So there are a lot of ethical issues with this former architect of the Capitol, and I believe this is J. Brett, Brett Blanton, if I That's had that right. right. Yeah. 
was the architect of the Capitol. And one of the concerns, or so there's lots of ironies here. So we had, as you were saying, or, uh, the, the Trump appointee was the architect of the Capitol on January 6th when Trump supporters invaded the Capitol attempting to overturn the election results. And this architect of the Capitol, Mr. Blanton, did not step down despite what happened on January 6th. And one of the ethical concerns that led to his removal by now President Biden was the fact that he and his wife were giving tours to people of the Capitol prior to January 6th when it was otherwise not available for public viewing. And his wife had posted things that seemed similar to some of the other messaging that we've seen from people who were supporting and organizing the January 6th insurrection. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so what happens now since this person has now been removed? What happens now? Well, there's a statutory uh, process in place, and uh, I should back up a little bit. Uh, senator Grassley, just who's a senator from Iowa, just last week served a letter on the architect, the former architect, saying, "When are you going to pay back the money that?" it cost the government for you to have this government car, which you drove 18,000 miles or so, including trips to, to uh, breweries and, uh, wow. and uh, vacation spots in Georgia and, and Florida. Um, so that he may or may not respond to that. Who knows? He hasn't made any effort to repay the government yet. And uh, they really have very limited ability to, uh, to extract that money from him. Um, but the, uh, the selection process for a new architect apparently has begun, but it's a, it's a long process and it involves leaders uh, from both parties on the House side and the Senate side to select three candidates who would then be sent to the White House and um, I'm hoping that that process is going to be transparent, but uh, given what happened in 2019, where neither party uh, was willing to reveal who the three candidates were that were sent back in 2019 before Blanton was picked. Um, and um, uh, once that three candidate list is sent over to the White House, the president then can select uh, one of the three candidates as his nomination. Mm. Well, super fascinating. Um, before we wrap up here, um, th yes, this is so interesting. Before we wrap up, we've talked about so many things, heard on the Hill, uh, you know, uh, efforts to unionize and uh, promote labor rights uh, on Capitol Hill, the architect of the Capitol. Is there anything else, um, Kevin, that you think we, uh, you'd like to touch on or share before we wrap up? No, I think that's, that covers it. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of detail that I've yeah. glossed, glossed <laughs> over because of time, but, uh, but that really covers what we uh, discussed uh, talking about and it's it's a it's an area that i hope citizens will watch because uh, what happens in this area really has an impact on on people as well as on legislators who are making the most important decisions that uh, uh, citizens uh, should be aware of yeah i really appreciate this because i think uh to your point um what happens on Capitol Hill, what happens in the federal government, I think for a lot of people feels so nebulous, it feels so removed, it feels so inapplicable. And I hope that with interviews like this, we can provide some transparency, some understanding, because at the end of the day, this is our government, they represent us, this is where our tax dollars go, and we should be informed citizens. And the more information we have about how exactly this works and how decisions are made, the more empowered we can be as, uh, as citizens. So 
thank you, um, Kevin, for helping shine some light and helping people understand something that, you know, seems so opaque. Uh, but it's actually really fascinating, I think. <laughs> so You're welcome. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to talk about it, and I hope uh, we might do it again soon. That would be great. So, um, for all the listeners out there, thank you for joining us today. In the show notes, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I'm going to include some links um, to news articles about this, so you can read more for yourself. I'm also going to be including a report. Um, that uh, Kevin put together about this issue, about unionizing efforts on Capitol Hill. So you can do plenty of additional reading um, if you're interested. Um, and so with that, I'm going to close this episode. Thank you much. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. Hello, listeners. This episode has a very short PS to it. Since this episode was originally recorded, there have been a couple of important updates that I want to alert you to, and that will be included in the show notes for further reading. Um, one is that uh, my guest, Kevin Molshine, mentioned that another report that he would be writing would be coming out soon, evaluating the new Republican leadership in the House's uh, efforts um, to rewrite um, House rules to impede the progress of unionization of congressional staff. And that report is now out and will be linked in the show notes. The second is, is that since our interview, the first member of the Senate, Senator Ed Markey, has voluntarily agreed to allow his staff to unionize. So that is, uh, again, the first senator um, to allow his staff to unionize. It's the first unionized uh, Senate office. And Senator Ed Markey is a uh, senator from the state of Massachusetts. So there's also a, an article linked in the show notes with more details about that. So this is an, a live issue and wanted to just provide you with a couple of updates. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.